This is Unfilter, episode 321 for August 6th, 2020. Thank you. Nice to see you. For President Trump, each appearance in front of the cameras brings another departure from reality on the coronavirus. The latest example, his interview with Axios. Asked about the soaring number of COVID-19 deaths in the U.S., the president says it is what it is. I think it's under control. I'll tell you what. How? A thousand Americans are dying a day. They are dying. That's true. And you ha- it is what it is. But that doesn't mean we aren't doing everything we can. It's under control as much as you can control it. Hello, friends, and welcome into 321 of the People's History Podcast. This week, we'll talk about how to lose the presidency in three easy steps. The circus is now officially entering high gear, and I think there's a couple of things on the near-term horizon I need you to know about. So we'll get into the election stuff in just a little bit. But as we have been doing recently, I think it's probably only appropriate that we start with covid and talk about a new grim milestone that we're seeing around the world. A grim new milestone. Confirmed coronavirus cases around the world crossed the 18 million mark with more than 4.6 million of those cases here in the U.S. as more than 10 million people recover globally. With me now here is ABC chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. Dr. Jen certainly was a busy one for the virus, unfortunately, as it seems to be these days. And usually we do a deep dive on a topic at this point. But today, you wanted to bring us more up to date on several key issues. So what are they? Yeah, let's get right to it, Amy, because this was a busy weekend. And Dr. Deborah Burks, head of the coronavirus task force, making news with several comments she made just yesterday. She's saying we're in a new phase of this virus. She is now suggesting that masks being worn at home for people who live with a vulnerable individual. She's saying assume you are infected if you live in an area with high viral activity. And she is reminding slash bringing to our attention that household transmission appears to be a huge factor wow. in transmission of this virus. Yeah, so we know cases are up, percentage of test positivity yeah. is up in most states, and now some public health officials are calling for a reset. What exactly does a reset mean? Well, ABC is so, so motivated to push new lockdowns. I've been noticing in the last week, in fact, I put together a little montage of them advocating for lockdowns. And I don't know what it is because I, I kind of would seem, the, the data would seem to suggest, based on the last lockdown, that it doesn't work very good here in the States. And now Dr. Burks is saying that transmissions at home remain one of the highest spreading vectors in the States. So we're going to send everybody back home and then have them infect their family and each other at home? I'm not really I'm not sure I see the logic. In an ideal world where lockdowns were followed and it worked, I could see it. If we if we had lockdowns that went well and mask implementation that went well very early on and social distancing and everybody uniformly took it at just as serious, I I could have maybe seen that work out. Like that could have worked. That seems like just based on the science that would work. But that's not how the U.S. operates. And I think we just kind of proved that out. And I don't see how a second round of lockdowns would really go any differently. 
But here I put together a collection of ABC advocating, sort of drooling all over lockdowns, sort of implying the entire time that we need another round of them here in the States. And a look this morning as Australia imposes one of the strictest lockdowns on Earth. As a major city there faces a second wave, what it could mean for a second wave here in the U.S. Australia, which had the virus under control a few months ago, is now locking down a major city in the face of a second wave, raising new questions about the course of the pandemic in our country. Two months ago, Victoria reported three new cases of the virus. Today, it's 725. Australia, which once seemed to have COVID under control, now taking what officials call a shock and awe approach to contain the surge of cases enacting stage four restrictions in Melbourne, and that means an 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. curfew. Just one hour of outdoor exercise and only one household member allowed to leave each day for shopping. An official there saying where you slept last night is where you'll need to stay for the next six weeks. For Americans living abroad, like Professor Maria Rubley, the inconvenience is unfortunate but necessary. While we feel sort of depressed and it's it's like really do we have to go through this again even we understand the need for it and and we're happy to abide by it and support it and the state of victoria is now sending out health and military teams to door knock people who are waiting for their test results or have tested positive and should be in self-isolation health and door knock with the military <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really intimidating. And for those who break that self-isolation rule, they are handing out $3,500 fines. Apparently, Amy, nearly 1,000 of those citations have been issued so far. We're looking at a similar lockdown here eventually. Is this a predictor of what is to come? Oh, right. I think you get my point. Uh, they want it, and I'm just, I don't see it. I could see it working in a perfect world. I don't see it here. And at what point do you let up? Because it seems even the countries that did the rather extensive lockdown and now are letting up are also seeing a quote-unquote surge. Hong Kong, for example. While the United States continues to battle its first wave... Of I'll back her up a little bit here. All recent coronavirus outbreaks, many are now taking a turn for the worse. Australia, uh -oh. previously a poster child for its handling of the pandemic, declared a state of disaster in Melbourne as cases there rise. Now, this is ABC News Prime and the lower third or Chiron, as they put it, reads COVID's global surge. And in Hong Kong, life was starting to resemble pre-pandemic times before a sudden surge prompted new social distancing measures. Medical experts there say that this regional pattern of optimism replaced with rounds of lockdowns should sound a warning to the rest of the world. Here's ABC's Britt Clinton. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a failed strategy, unfortunately, because there's always some of the virus still out there because it's so widespread and you have the asymptomatic spreaders. But additionally, we haven't even fully explored if animals are reservoirs for this virus or not. We have seen some reports of animals contracting the coronavirus from humans. So it is possible they could become reservoirs and no amount of lockdown would work. That's kind of the scary thing about it. CNN has uh, picked up on the lack of immediate testing, a point I've been harping on for about three weeks straight now. And they have a conspiracy. And that conspiracy simply is it's all Trump's fault. Trump would like to keep back the amount of testing. He wants to hold back the amount of testing because it would make him look worse. So their theory is he's 
somehow instrumented this blockage of faster testing. They start with a discussion about Trump uh, talking about uh, medications for corona, and then they transition to that conversation. And I happened to catch this. I also noticed uh, the the governor's brother here throws around the term doc loosely. It's Sanjay Gupta. He is an actor on the payroll for CNN. Is he a doctor? Yes. He's also an actor, and he's been one for a very long time. But when we're talking about medical stuff that uh, is meant to undercut the official narrative of the administration, we like to use cute terms like doc and stuff. So that way it sounds real good. We're talking to a doctor. Remind everybody about it over and over again. This is a real fun clip. I like it a lot, as you can tell. Just love it. So uh, th- there's there's no law. Log- I-, I would hate to ascribe a motivation because I would assign some logic to it. And there is none. Mm. Look, I mean, I think the play is pretty obvious when you don't want to deal with reality. You create a surreality. You create a distraction. That's what the drug is. Look at the I think he's talking about the media there. He just doesn't realize it. You are what you say others are. Mm. Look, I mean, I think the play is pretty obvious when you don't want to deal with reality, you create a surreality. You create a distraction. That's what the drug is. Look at the UK. We'll discuss it more later in the show with Ashish Jha, you know, from Harvard, who's taking a look at it. How do they get these rapid tests? Right. How are they getting it done in 90 minutes? You know, is the UK so much better than us? Is there some science that's proprietary? I mean, couldn't we be buying up those kinds of tests right now, Doc? We should have been developing this ourselves, Chris. And, you know, you talked about this very early on. There was a strategic, I think, uh, method to, to minimizing this by not testing. Sad to say, but I think that, that that's the truth now. Uh, I mean, you sort of suggested that early on, and I thought maybe we're just behind. But I think it was deliberate now at this point to not test because uh, it would make things look bad. We should have had some significant breakthroughs in antigen testing by now. I recently played clips that kind of go into maybe some potential explanations to why we're not seeing more rapid testing approved. And it comes down to just a lot of reasons that have to do with, in my mind, not good enough. (laughs) You know, like each one of these reasons is not good enough. You add them all up, and I can see why we haven't shifted gears to more rapid testing. I think it's a mistake. I think rapid testing is the key to going back to work. It's the answer to lockdowns. You test yourself. If you're positive that morning, you don't go in. A dollar a test would mean that more people could test themselves. So somebody else is at work, they get sick, they test themselves, they don't come in. Or you can test people more rapidly when you discover someone in a cluster of people has it. Why it hasn't gotten approved yet seems to be more about what types of tests are getting approved right now. Ones that have a certain sensitivity range versus ones that have a different sensitivity range. And it's down to semantics plus momentum. You have boots on the ground that have built up momentum around a process and a workflow for the swab testing. And they're not going to want to stop midstream now. They can barely keep up as it is. It's the idea to them to retool their entire infrastructure is ludicrous. It would cost lives in their minds. So it's a lot of pressures. It's not necessarily some complicated pulling of the strings from the administration level, preventing rapid testing from being approved. They're using it at the White House. And when asked about it, Trump said he's a fan of it. He's in support of it. But that doesn't stop CNN's doctor from going on the air and just speculating wildly. Because who cares? It's just the news. Just like Jim Jordan, who leans far to the right, speculating with Dr. Fauci during a hearing. Now, I liked this line of questioning. Um, Jim Jordan got a lot of crap for it because 
It's about the protests. And you're not really supposed to bring up the protests in relation to the surge in coronavirus cases. That's a no-no. So Jim Jordan got a lot of heat for this line of questioning. But I want to play the whole thing in its full context for you so you can make up your own mind. Chairman, Dr. Fauci, do protests increase the spread of the virus? Do protests increase the spread of the virus? Uh, I think I can make a general statement. Well, half a million protesters on June 6th alone. Yeah. I'm just asking, that number of no. people, does yeah. it increase the spread of the virus? Cra crowding together, particularly when you're not wearing a mask, contributes to the spread of the virus. Should we limit the protesting? I, I'm not sure what you mean. Should How do we say limit the protesting? Should government what? limit the protesting? I, I, I don't think that's relevant to... Well, you just said if it increases the spread of the virus, I'm just asking, should we limit it? Well, I'm, I'm not in a position to determine what the government can do in a forceful way. Well, you make all kinds of recommendations. You, no. you make comments on dating, on baseball, on everything no. you can imagine. I'm just asking you, you just said it, yeah. that protests increase the spread. No. I'm just asking you, should we try to limit the protests? No, I think I would leave that to people who have more of an, a, a position to do that. I can tell you. Government stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci? Yeah. Last week in the Calvary Chapel case, five liberals on the Supreme Court said it was okay for Nevada to limit church services. Governor, I, I mean, Justice Gorsuch said it best. He said, there's no, there's no world in which the Constitution permits Nevada to favor Caesar's palace over Calvary Chapel. I'm just asking, is there a world where the Constitution says you can favor one First Amendment liberty protesting right. over another practicing your faith? I'm not favoring anybody over anybody. I'm just making a statement that's a broad statement that avoid crowds of any type, no matter where you are, because that leads to the acquisition and transmission. And I don't judge one crowd versus another crowd. That does kind of sound like a backwards yes, though. When you're in a crowd, particularly if you're not wearing a mask, that induces it's just, it's the spread. A simple, it's a simple question, doctor. Should we limit the protest? Government is obviously yeah. lim limiting people yeah. going to church. And, and look, I'm there's, not been gonna, no, there's been no violence that I, I yeah. can see at church. I haven't seen people yeah. during a church service go out and, and harm police officers right. or burn buildings. But we know that. I mean, for 63 days, right. nine weeks, it's been happening in Portland. Right. Yeah. Well, one night in Chicago, 49 officers were injured. But no limit, to, no limit to protests. But, boy, you can't go to church on Sunday. What was this? I don't know how many times I can answer that. I'm not going to opine on limiting anything. I'm just going to tell you. You've opined a on a lot of things, Dr. Fauci. Yeah, but I and they go around and around and around and around for uh, about another three minutes. That's essentially all he gets out of him, though. I want to also follow up on some data that we talked about last week. A bit of errata here on the show. Uh, the HHS data skeptic guy that I played last week saying that it looked like the numbers were getting juiced by the HHS now that they've been taken from the CDC. He's retracted his statements, sort of, mostly. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm going with this retraction because we also had some great work in the Discord that took the raw data, built the open source applications and dashboards, and looked at it themselves, and they could not verify what he was seeing. So when you, when you bring, and that's just some great work, by our community. Thank you guys for doing that. I'm sorry I am forgetting your name right now to the individual in the Discord who did this work. That's just because I'm a horrible person, not because you don't deserve it. It's just that's all it is. Uh, <laughs> I just have, I, after I go, I, really what happens, like after I go through all these clips, my mind is like completely full 
of show information, and I really can't hold anything else. But I really appreciate him looking at the data because it gave us another source building on top of open source tools. And so with that in mind, I want to play a little bit of the retraction that gentleman made. A couple of days ago, I put up... Sorry, not the gentleman in the Discord. I should make that clear. Jeff Hester, the gentleman who put the YouTube video up uh, disputing the figures. Just to be clear about that. Up a couple of posts looking at the presence of a very, very sharp break in the number of COVID cases being reported in red states as compared with blue states. And the fact that that very sharp break coincides exactly with the day that responsibility for data was handed from the Centers for Disease Control to Health and Human Services. Uh, I'm going to take those posts down and back away from that a little bit, and I want to talk to you about why. First, it turns out that about half of this effect is due to what's going on in Texas and Florida and I had not looked closely enough at those. And in particular, I had not looked at changes that had been made at the county level in Miami-Dade County in, uh, in Florida. And so when I took Texas and Florida out of this entirely, I was not left with as large an effect. So and a smaller effect size. But I did look at the data in other ways. For example, I looked at the statistics of the slope across that divide, um, saying here there's a break in the slope, here there wasn't. And I went through and looked at that on a state-by-state -state basis. And it still remained the case that on a state-by-state -state basis, when you looked at that across that divide, there was very little variation among blue states and a great deal of variation among red states, even when Texas and, and Florida were removed. And so there's still clearly something that is unusual about these data. Red state data, right after the middle of July, are a little bit wonky. Now, so why pull the original post down? We can stop here. You can watch it. I'll have it linked in the show notes. Uh, he pulled it down because he doesn't want to spread misinformation is essentially it. And I, I uh, applaud that. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to follow up on it, too, is I think it's important to remain skeptical, especially when you have a change in ownership of data that is so critical. But I think it's also important to follow up if it doesn't play out. So it's something we'll keep watching. I think I think you probably all agree with me on that. It's something to keep an eye on. But for right now, we don't have any real strong evidence of shenanigans with the data from the HHS. So that's good news, I guess, really. It seems like that's good news. Let's transition to some bad news. There was a massive explosion in Beirut, and we're still just learning the basics at this point. As I record this episode, it's all rather new. There are awful images coming in from Beirut tonight after a massive and deadly explosion. Buildings destroyed, at least 60 dead, more than 3,000 injured. And those numbers are expected to rise right into the night. And just before we came on this evening, President Trump said this looked like a terrible attack, in his words. But what authorities in Beirut are now saying about early clues of a cause. Here's our senior foreign correspondent, Ian Panel, tonight. This was the moment an entire city shook to its core as a massive explosion erupted in Beirut port. 
The blast occurring around 6 p.m. local time. Eyewitness video showing a fire and a series of smaller detonations and confirmed reports suggesting perhaps fireworks. But what happened next was far bigger. A lot of you have probably seen this explosion. It's just massive. I want to play the clip of Trump saying that the generals told him the blast was a bomb of some kind because that's getting a ton of coverage and I think what we should probably talk about. Um, I just want to follow up before I ask a coronavirus question on Lebanon. You called this an attack. Uh, are you confident that this was an attack and not an accident? Well, it would seem like it based on the explosion. I've met with some of our great generals and they just seemed to feel that it was. This was not a uh, some kind of a uh, manufacturing uh, explosion type of event. This was a uh, seems to be, according to them, they would know better than I would, but they seem to think it was a uh, attack. It was a bomb of some kind. Yes. So he's being told, um, not exactly what the headlines say, but he Trump says he was told, was it an attack, or was it incompetence? That is hard to say. So if you're not familiar with Beirut, it is the capital and it's the largest city of Lebanon. And it is going through some historically rough times. And there's a lot of background around the story that makes it seem like it might be more than just an accidental explosion. The New York Times published on July 10th, 2020, a headline that reads, Long planned and bigger than thought strikes on Iran's nuclear program. And it reads, there's a paragraph in here, which I'll have linked in the show notes, as Iran's Center for Advanced Nuclear Centrifuges lies in charred ruins after an explosion apparently engineered by Israel, the long-simmering conflict between the United States and Tehran appears to be escalating into a potentially dangerous phase, likely to play out during the American presidential election campaign. That was on July 10th. Link and read, I recommend, in the show notes because it does give you background on a series of explosions that have been going around the Middle East recently. Israel Today published on July 31st, 2020, 10.30 a.m. local Tel Aviv time. In a dramatic policy shift, Israel to hold Lebanon accountable for Hezbollah attack. Defense Minister Benny Gnatz has instructed the IDF to bomb Lebanese infrastructure if Hezbollah harms Israeli soldiers or civilians. That is also linked in the show notes. That's kind of a big deal right there, because that was five days before this explosion. That article ran in Israel Today five days before the explosion in Beirut. That seems notable. So was it the handiwork of Israel or a group working for Israel? Maybe, maybe not. Trump will likely say it was a bomb attack. He'll probably continue to say that it was a resistance group from Hezbollah, maybe like a group attached with them. But there is this joint Israeli-American program that is designed to go after groups that are supporting Iran's weapon programs. And with the U.S. presidential race heating up right now, it sort of behooves certain players like Saudi Arabia or Iran or, or Israel or anyone who wants to kind of push the election in a certain direction. There is reasons to cause problems right now. And besides just whipping up national sentiment amongst Americans conservatives and getting the left riled up as well, there's also another purpose. Maybe maybe it's it's more about attacks that are really kind of designed at taking out a certain layer 
of interests in the Middle East that both Israel and the U.S. share? I obviously don't know. Could could be completely incompetence. It could be that there was just a lot of ammunition or fireworks and some other explosives, and one thing led to another, and we just have a huge bomb because of a poor-run infrastructure. It's totally possible. And I, I don't want to jump to any particular conclusion. If you, if you go by what CNN says, it's probably an accident. In a land so often cursed by violence, a catastrophe. More likely the product of human incompetence than malicious design. At the core of the Beirut explosion, government officials fear, is some 2,750 tonnes of ammonium nitrate, a common ingredient for fertiliser. But mixed with fuel or sugar, it can be a precursor for homemade bombs. They have been used by the IRA and terrorists worldwide. Anti-government extremists used two tonnes and killed 168 in Oklahoma. Chris Hunter is a decorated bomb disposal expert who served with British Special Forces and still works in Iraq and Syria. What you can see is a series of sparks and flashes, you know, sort of down towards the base of the, uh, the actual flames themselves and the smoke. And that's consistent with something like fireworks cooking off. If it's confined in something like shipping containers, then what you can get is effectively a giant pipe bomb. But that, he says, was just the detonator for the vast ammonium nitrate explosion. Moments later, of course, we see the, uh, the explosion itself. And that's preceded by that sort of very brilliant red-coloured um, uh, smoke coming up as well. And that's consistent with chlorates and nitrates of the type used in fertiliser. Lebanon's Prime Minister has vowed investigations and punishment for whoever allowed this to happen. Hunter says that the white smoke further suggests it was an accident. So it seems that the two things could still be true, that it could have been a stash for Hezbollah or another group and an interested party wanted to get rid of it. What's all that? What was all that doing there? And fireworks, I don't know if I agree with that. I think it looks a lot like munitions going off. If you look at the videos where they're really close to the building, it looks like bullets are shooting out of that thing. Um, it doesn't look like fireworks to me at all. It looks like somebody it looked like somebody was inside just letting off tons and tons and tons and tons of ammo, but obviously that's not what was going on. Pretty wild. Huge explosion. Really something, you know, because you're watching it. You see this big explosion. You're like, wow, yeah, that's a pretty big explosion. And then you see the big sucker, the almost mushroom cloud-like explosion that just has a supersonic wave that rips through the city. It's, it's really wild. And I try to put myself in that in situation, imagining something like that had happened close to home. And it would be like, it would be like a volcano going off. It, it, it will it'll fundamentally alter that city forever. And maybe it was an accident. I just, I don't know. I'm not buying that. I'm not really buying. I don't, I don't have any particular other answer, but the explosion was so massive. It doesn't seem like you just accidentally have that much explosive material that isn't necessarily easy to store to begin with in one spot. And then you look at these threats that were going out towards the Lebanese just five days before this explosion, the whole thing doesn't really add up. So I'll keep an eye on it. I'd love to know what you think. Unfilter.show slash Discord. Link me up anything you find. Or if you have any information and you want to keep it confidential, unfilter.show slash contact. That goes into my Proton 
mailbox. Something else that I'm, I, I got to be honest with you guys. I can't, can't lie about this. I was legitimately disappointed when I saw the extended leaked body cam footage from earlier in the George Floyd encounter. And it sort of shifted my perspective a little bit. And I can only imagine the internal struggle to get this footage out sooner. And what we have, and so you'll have to excuse the audio, I've done as much processing on it as I reasonably could. What we have here is leaked footage of someone recording the playback screen, I would imagine, from a police department or some somewhere where this footage would be stored. They're recording the computer screen, and that's what was released. So the audio is coming from the computer speakers. It's not very good. So I only grabbed a few clips. The entire thing is linked in the show notes. But when you hear this body cam footage, you can hear almost immediately... It starts out with George Floyd not listening to the officer's very clear instructions and escalating the situation almost immediately as the officer is walking up and telling him to put his hands on the wheel. I see your hands. Damn, man. Stay in the car. Let me see your other hand. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me see your other hand. Both hands. Put your hands off right now. Let me see your other hand. Put your hand up there. Put your hand up there. Put your hands on the wheel. Put your hands on the wheel. I'm sorry, sir. Who else is in the car? Put your foot back in. So you can tell he's very worked up. He's very anxious. He's very stressed out. He's not handling this high-stress situation very well. He's starting to get out of the car when the officer's telling him to stay and put his hands on the wheel. He's not putting both hands on the wheel. There's passengers that get out of George's car at this point, and you can hear the officer asking them, what's going on with him? What's his deal? Is he on something? Why is he resisting us so much? What's his deal? I don't know. That's my ex. I don't know. Why is he getting all squirrely and not showing his hands no and just being all weird like that? Because he's been shot before. Well, well I get that, but still, when officers say get out of the car, he's drunk. Is he on something? Oh, he got a thing going on. I'm telling you what about does that mean? Mean? He asks her, is, is he drunk? Is he on something? And her response is, no, no, he's just got a thing going on. Like, you know, he's a little crazy. Is he drunk? Is he on something? Oh, he got a thing going on. I'm telling you about that. What does that mean? It's been one, she says. And, and when he when he got flashed, the co- uh, the cop flashed the gun at George Floyd. She's saying it just it messes him up. But he keeps acting up. They get him out of the car, but he's fighting them, and they just straight out ask him, "What is going on with you, man? You're acting strange. Are you on something?" Oh, out you, man. Are you on something right now? I'm not, no, nothing. You acting yeah. all erratic. Let's go. Yeah, man. Let's go. All this is going on before the footage we had seen publicly released before. A lot of this t- took him forever to get him out of his car. He kind of fights with them as he walks around. And then they get to the car before he gets on the ground, but the, before the famous moment where he says he's out of breath, before the cop puts his knee on George Floyd's neck and kills him, before all of that happens, for seven minutes, they fight to try to get him in the car. If you get in this car, we can talk. 
So the officer says, all right, I'm going to pull you into the car. And that's when stuff starts getting real bad. He's fighting them, trying to get out of the car. I want to lay on the ground. I want to lay on the ground. And and I they seem to be getting, the officers seem to be getting more and more upset as time goes on. And then it leads to the moment that has famously spread around the world. What shifted for me when I saw this was the context of seeing them struggle with him for quite a while before it got to the point where they killed him. Now, completely in the wrong still for how he died. Um, but the officers were asking in that clip, are you on something? Are you on something? They deal with a lot of people. They know. <laughs> when they when they have a suspicion when somebody's on, and they're usually right. NPR published on June 4th, 2020 at 6.27 a.m., Medical examiner's autopsy reveals George Floyd had positive tests for coronavirus. So not only did he have COVID-19, which he mentions in that clip, the 20-page report also indicates that Floyd had fentanyl and methamphetamines in his system at the time of his death, although the drugs are not listed as a cause of his death. But he very well may have been tripping. Um, it may have been the meth, the fentanyl, it may have adjusted the way he responds. Plus the doctor in there said that he likely had a condition that made him perform poorly under stressful conditions. You combine that with the drug use, the past history of the gun, and it may have been a no win scenario for those officers going into it. They're not necessarily properly trained how to deal with somebody that's struggling with mental conditions and is on drugs. I mean, they do their best. It's still horrible what happened. It still shouldn't have happened. It's still wrong. But it does change my perspective on it a bit. The protests, as a result of George Floyd's death, are still going in the Pacific Northwest, in his name. They're still going. And they're getting a little more aggressive now that CHOP is shut down. They spread out, just like I speculated they would, only I didn't think they'd necessarily go to city council homes and the Seattle police chief's home and really kind of escalate things to a, to a level where other citizens are now stepping up to f- f- not fight. That's overstating it. Um, push back. There's now it's not it's not like a counter protest movement, but there is a counter-movement against the protesters in the Pacific Northwest, and they don't like it. From the mayor's house to the homes of city council members, protests, protesters are bringing the debate over defunding the police to their doorsteps. Over the weekend, they showed up at the home of Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best. Good evening. I'm Mark Wright. I'm Joyce Taylor. So in a letter, she says that that took things too far. King 5's Vanessa Mishanya spoke with some of those protesters tonight. 
in a letter, Chief Carmen Best said the protesters who visited her neighborhood were aggressive. And if it weren't for the intervention of her neighbors, they would have trespassed and caused damage. Well, I spoke to some of the protesters there that night, and they say there's another side to the story. We literally wanted to go exercise our First Amendment right and ask the chief of police some questions. That's what members of the Seattle group Everyday March said they wanted to do Saturday evening when they went to Chief Carmen Best's Snohomish neighborhood. Some of our protesters then exited cars to go see what's going on up there, and at which point they were met with neighbors who had rifles in their faces. Get out of here. There's a private drive. Get out of the road. This is video that was taken by one of the protesters who was shocked to see resistance. They never got to the chief because they said neighbors intervened, blocking the road and showed them weapons. We tried to educate them and tell them it wasn't okay. They're young, and you can hear it right here. We tried to educate them. We tried to educate them. There's a certain irony of a 18, 19-year-old protesters trying to educate people that our neighbors of the police chief it's um it's sort of it's sort of arrogant and i think it speaks to part of the problem here is there's sort of an entitled arrogance that comes along with these protesters as if they could go to the police chief's house or the mayor's house and city council members house and harass them when they enter their driveway and prevent them from leaving their home and not have some kind of repercussion there's a bit of an arrogance there and then then they're upset that they were stopped. Blocking the road and showed them weapons. We tried to educate them and tell them it wasn't okay. They tried to explain uh, what they were I... doing there, but the people on the road refused to move. They left when they no longer felt safe. We are from Seattle. We represent part of Seattle. So if you want to stick up for the people in that neighborhood, then go work for that that county or whatever the case may be. Give up your position as chief of police of Seattle and go work there since you're sticking up for them. In a letter asking for city council to denounce the protesters' behavior, Chief Best said these protesters were being aggressive and lauded her neighbors for deterring crime. Snohomish County Sheriff Adam Fortney agreed with Best, calling the demonstrations at officials' homes a bullying tactic. It is clearly a bullying tactic. To take the protests and move them to the individuals' homes um, I'd feel I'd feel bullied if uh, there were a bunch of protesters outside my home. I'd feel pretty bullied. You guys are coming out your house with AR-15s to confront a bunch of people in clothing, cotton, no protection, no nothing. I didn't see any AR-15s. So for I mean, if that's I guess whatever bullying, I would not say that. Holding you accountable is more likely. The group says they want understanding of what they're trying to accomplish, not to destroy but to spark conversations. We are not trying to just talk out and yell. We are truly here to have a conversation because the things happening in Seattle right now cannot keep happening. You know, like all the protests. Um, now, there is a new tactic the protesters are taking, and uh, I think it's kind of cheeky. I don't know how far it's going to go, but they're suing the Seattle police for making it economically unviable to protest. The lawsuit filed on behalf of five protesters argues they can't even enjoy the freedom to protest because of the Seattle Police Department's tactics when it comes to crowd control measures. And they point to last month's clash on Capitol Hill as evidence. They liken these tactics to an unconstitutional protest tax, arguing only those with the money to buy expensive body armor can engage in First Amendment speech in the streets of Seattle safely because of SPD's indiscriminate use of chemical and less lethal weapons that's had a chilling effect on protesters 
and should be temporarily stopped by a judge to end the pay-to-protest racket that favors only a privileged few who are wealthy enough or popular enough to crowdsource funds. (laughs) The pay-to-protest racket that makes only those that are popular enough to crowdsource funds able to protest. That's, That's their case. Wow. There is a lot to that, and I feel like I could unpack that for another half hour, but I'm just, I'm going to leave that there, and I'm going to move on to Sally Yates' testimony in the Senate hearing on the origins of the Russia investigation, because this is what it's getting to be all about. A hearing we have been monitoring all morning just wrapped up on Capitol Hill. Republican senators grilled former acting attorney general Sally Yates over the origins of the 2016 Russian meddling probe, the one that put President Trump's 2016 team under the FBI lens. Yates appeared remotely defending the findings of Operation Crossfire Hurricane. But Senate Judiciary Chair Lindsey Graham said he wants to know what prompted the operation that led to Michael Flynn's indictment. Graham accused Yates's Justice Department of applying a 200-year-old law called the Logan Act for purely political purposes in an exchange that drew in Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy. What was he mentioned in the Logan Act about? In what context? I'm not sure if... He mentioned that in the Oval Office meeting or in the meeting that What do you think about the... Mr. Chairman, let her answer the question. Uh, Just because it's a woman testifying doesn't mean she has to be cut off. Yeah, thanks a lot, Senator Lee. I really appreciate that. You're very constructive. (laughs) It, It was a difficult hearing because her audio and her connection were so bad that, uh, I mean, you just heard a little bit there, and that was some of the better audio. It was so bad that some of those asking questions left and went back to their offices and joined virtually because they had a slightly better connection to her. Um, And one of those was Cory Booker, your good buddy. And he came on at the end. He was the last senator to ask his questions, and his questions were really all about Russiagate and trying to set up the precedent that we shouldn't reveal the new report about the origins of Russiagate before the election. And this, my friends, has now been coming up in just about every Senate hearing since about two weeks ago. And I caught it last week. I didn't catch it the week before. I didn't think anything of it. And now I've caught it again. They're laying the groundwork for, for the bombshell that's coming towards closer towards the actual election day, possibly an October surprise. And then last week, Attorney General Barr refused to agree that he would wait to release a report by the U.S. Attorney Attorney uh, John uh, Durham until after the election in November. You notice how he doesn't actually name the report. He says what he has to say so that everybody's on the same page. So we all know what we're talking about here without actually even giving it even the slightest bit more attention than it actually needs. Don't want to say the forbidden words. Attorney Attorney. Uh, John uh, Durham until after the election in November. I'd I'd like to enter to the record a New York Times article from today entitled, Will Will Bill Barr Try to Help Trump Win the Election? Uh, The article details Attorney General Barr's apparent efforts to override key Justice Department policies and norms by deploying this and other investigations for political purposes. Note here, this is why the media reporting really matters. 
You think it's just a coincidence that that New York Times report came out the morning of this hearing? Just a coincidence that that came out that says that? Of course not. Of course not. They enter this reporting as evidence, and they build up on it over and over. So even if one story's off, they've entered five or six into the record over time, and now they have a preponderance of evidence. Even if it's the tail wagging the dog, it can be intelligence leaks going to the New York Times that gets them to write things strategically the right time. They post it, and then guys like Cory Booker can cite it as an example. And this shit happens all the time. That's why what the media reports on actually does matter, because when the government wants to, they'll eventually cite a bunch of reports as a preponderance of public knowledge and evidence. It happens, and he's doing it right now. Ours apparent efforts to override key Justice Department policies and norms by deploying this and other investigations for political purposes. And uh, if that article can be entered to the record, Mr. Chairman? Uh, without objection. And so, Ms. Yates, the Inspector General's report stated that in the run-up to the 2016 election, you, quote, did not want to do anything that could potentially impact candidate Trump. That's on uh, page 71 and 72. So why is it important for the Justice Department to avoid taking actions just before an election that could, again, I quote, potentially impact it? It's so obvious what his angle is here. It's so obvious that he's getting this answer on the record after he put that article on the record. So that way, when this new investigation of the origins of the Russia report drops, they've already set the precedent that it's attempting to affect the election and that we're against that. Affecting the election is bad, right? It's just before an election that could, again, I quote, potentially impact it. This is an important principle that applies not just in the investigation of the president, but in any investigation that could involve an elected official. And she goes on to agree. I think you can probably get the gist of it, but her audio is so horrible, I don't want to play it for you. But she says it's important not just because it's Donald Trump, but it's important that if it's about any election, the public have faith in the justice system. So Corey wraps it up with a general statement that he's looking forward to fighting the release of the report tooth and nail. It's going to be great. Um, these are the things that we should be looking at right now to prevent uh, what could happen in November uh, that to me would be uh, a, a serious blow uh, to our overall democracy. And I'm hoping that these are issues um, that we can we can explore as a committee. And Mr. Chairman, thank you for allowing me to go over time. And, uh, and Ms. Yates, it's very actually uh, good to see you again. I, I look forward to the next opportunity we have to connect. There you go. That'll bring us uh, that'll bring us right up to the election. That sets us up perfectly. You can see what's brewing in the background there. And it's um, just happened to come up the last three weeks in a row. No bigs. Let's do a little bit of a showception here. I have one more bit of errata. The Nancy clip that I played last week where she gets real mad turns out was from 2017 the dark mode period for unfilter where i wasn't actively watching clips so when something like that comes into the system and i see it i go oh this is brand new i haven't seen this one before lesson learned lesson learned while it was still a great clip and uh, i'd play it again i think i will play it again <laughs> no no i will play it again I, I i want to but i'll behave myself i just i just she's got so mad she just got so mad so that's a little bit of errata Thank you to the Discord for helping me catch that. I appreciate them sourcing that for me. I try to put links to all that stuff in the show notes, too. And with that, I want to plug the Patreon. Patreon.com slash unfilter. 
This show is made possible by our audience, and that's why I have zero qualms about making corrections and trying to make sure that we get the people's history correct the best that I can. I'm one man with no team making a podcast, but with the backing of my community, I think we're going to get there. Patreon.com slash unfilter. Slowed down on the uh, patrons over the last couple of weeks, so if you've been thinking about it, do step up. I appreciate it. Makes this show possible, keeps me motivated, and keeps me working for the people. All right, let's pick it back up and move over to the election because stuff's going down. It's officially kicked off into full crazy mode. All right, so this Trump Axios interview was so bad. I'm sure most of you have seen it. It went viral. I was getting linked to it like crazy. And it might just be the beginning of the end for the Trump campaign. Donald Trump sat down for an interview with an Australian reporter, and the result was priceless. Many saying it could well mark the president's end three months out from one of the most important elections in U.S. history. Now, I know that sounds like hyperbole to say it could mark the end. Stick with the idea for a moment. Stick with this idea, because this, if you recall, is in just following the Chris Wallace interview, where he also did very poorly. Donald Trump came with paper, charts and stats, primed for a presidential performance. We're last, meaning we're first. Australian reporter Jonathan Swan came armed with facts. No, no. Well, here you go. The fake news. It's not fake news, it's on video. His follow-up questions and the facial expressions had the trademarks of a comedy skit. But this was a serious political interview. I think it's under control. I'll tell you what. How? A thousand Americans are dying a day. They are dying. That's true. And you ha- it is what it is. Now, let's, let's actually, instead of just watching the cuts, let's play some extended parts of the interview so you get the full context, so you can hear the full exchange. I, I propose to you that one more interview like this and he's done. He, it, this, to me, is similar to Hillary passing out at the 9-11 memorial where she got a little dehydrated and completely collapsed and was thrown in that van. The media didn't really focus on it, but those who saw it lost confidence in Hillary in that moment. They realized she was really, really sick. She was hiding something, but they didn't know what. Confidence was lost. I think when you watch this interview in its entirety, you see a man struggling to keep up with the demands of his office and struggling to continue to double down on a narrative that doesn't really seem to be fitting reality anymore. And the problem is interviews like this one and the one with Chris Wallace lay it all out to bear for all of us to see. The, the federal intervention. In- Excuse me, one yeah. thing I would say about yeah. testing. Because we test so much, we show cases. So we show many, many cases. We show tremendous number of cases. I know you're smiling when I say no, that. No, but, but I'm come on. I mean, I've no, no. heard you say this. Other but- countries don't test like we do, do so know, they don't show cases. Just a couple points on that. This interview, I think, is fascinating because the style of interview is almost the perfect anecdote to the way Trump works. It's, it's You have to be calm, you have to stay cool, and you have to catch little things that he drops. And I think most people 
are blown away by the office, by the honor to talk to the president, by what it means for their career, about what an opportunity it is, and they don't really fully listen. This this almost this interview almost has a familiar combativeness to it when people are actually listening to each other. Other countries don't test like we do, so they don't show cases. Just a couple of points on that. I wasn't going to continue on the testing, but you said it. So we're testing so much because it's spread so far in America. We're testing and so s- much because we had the ability to test. Okay. Because we but, came up with tests. But South Korea. Jonathan, we weren't even. We didn't even have a test when I took over. We didn't even have a test. Now, in all why, fairness, why would you there have a was test? No test. The virus didn't this, exist. How would you have a test? I was going to say. Okay. There was no test for this. No, we didn't have a test because there was no of test. Of course. In, in a very short order, we got one test, we got another test. It was broken another. the first Many one. of those tests are now obsolete because we've, right. you know, it's called science. It's called science. Didn't mean to cut him off there. Sort of jumping around, trying to get on a certain track. Here's an extended bit here. And I, I, I hear this and I hear a man who's not connecting human lives to numbers. They're all abstract categories, statistics, and not actual lives. The, the figure I look at is death. And death is going up now. Okay, no, and it's no. a thousand a day. If you look at death. Yeah, it's going up look. again. Let's look. Daily death. Take a look at some of these charts. I'd okay? love to. We're going to look. Let's look. And if you look at death. Yeah. Per, started to go up again. One. Well, right here, the United States is lowest in numerous categories. Uh, we're lower than the world. Lower than we're the lower world. lower than what is that? Europe. In what? In what? Take a look. Right here. Here's case death. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad. Well, well, Much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. You can't. You can't do that. You have Why to go. Can't I do that? You have to go by. You have to go by where. Look, here is the United States. You have to go by the cases. The cases. Why are not dead. as a proportion when of population? We have somebody. What it says is when you have somebody that yeah. has it, where there's a case, oh, okay. the people that live sure. from oh. those cases. It's surely a relevant statistic to say if the U.S. has X population and X percentage of death of that population no, versus South Korea. No, because you have to go by the cases. Well, look at South Korea, if, for example. 51 million population, 300 deaths. It's you, like, it's you, crazy. You don't know that. I do. It's you on don't the, know it's that. Jo- you th- I almost get the sense that Trump knows something about those numbers. I think they're faking their statistics, uh, South Korea? I, an I won't advanced get into country? that because they have a very good relationship yeah. with the country. But you don't know that. And they have spikes. Look, here's Germany, one. Germany, low, 9,000. Here's one right here, United States. You take anyway. the number of cases. Okay. Now look, we're last, meaning we're first. Last? I don't know we what we're first best. in. As a well, take a look. Okay. Again, it's cases. Okay. Um, and we have cases... Because I mean, of the a thousand Americans are dying a day. But I understand. I understand on cases, it's different. No, but you're not reporting it correctly, Jonathan. I think I am, but... If you take a look at this other chart, okay. look, this is our testing, I believe. This is the testing, yeah. Yeah, we do more tests. No, wait a minute. Well, don't we get credit for that? And because we do more tests, we have more cases. In other words, we test more. We have... But, now, take a look. The top one, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. But, the top, Jonathan. If, 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 if hospital rates were going down and deaths were going down, I'd say terrific. You deserve to be praised for well, testing, they but even, they're all going you know, up. They very rarely 60,000 Americans are in hospital. If you watch the thousand news dying or read the papers, they usually talk about new cases, new cases, new cases. I'm talking about death. Well, you look at it's death. Up. Death is way down from where it was. It's, See, it's death. 
It's death. Now, all of a sudden, death is this abstract thing. I'm talking about death. Well, you look it's at going death. Up. Death is way down from where it was. It's, it's a thousand death. a day. It was two and a half thousand. It went down to 500. Now it's going up death. again. Excuse me. Where it was is much higher than where it is right now. It went down and it went spiked, up again. But now it's going down again. It's, it's going, going down in Arizona. It's going down in Florida. Nationally, it's, it's going, going down in Texas. Take a look at this. These are the tests. It's going down in Florida? Yeah, it's going, it leveled out and it's going down. That's my report as of yesterday. Anyway, Mr. President, if I could change subject. It is going down in Arizona. It Arizona it is. Arizona it is. Texas it has big spiked, problems. And it is, it, it spiked and it's now going down in Florida. It's evened out and going down in Florida. I don't actually think that's necessarily true. It may have been for three or four days at the time of that interview, though, possibly. I'm not quite clear on the timing there. But you hear a president who seems to be struggling to grasp all of the different angles of this problem. And he's got a track and he's, he's got information inside that track. But when you go outside that track, it kind of falls apart. And it's also not fair. I suppose the way he sees it to talk about case counts all the time. So many cases, so many cases, so many cases. But when you talk about deaths to not talk about them in relation to cases, it's like picking and choosing the worst numbers, I think is his point there. However, it comes across as total incompetence, and it's not going to lose his following. But incidents like this, and this is number two, and we just need a third, and I think he has wrecked his chances for the presidency. Another one of these, like I say, will be like that Hillary collapsing moment. He's collapsing under the pressure of this job, and it is being out, it is out on display for everyone. And to be quite frank with you, I don't understand why he doesn't follow the Biden procedure here. The idea of Trump may be more powerful than the man himself. Trump's supporters speaking for him may be more effective than Trump himself, which I know goes counter to his philosophy and about his philosophy towards social media as well. But when his representatives are speaking for him, when his supporters are speaking for him, they speak in grandiose terms. You know, it, it is different worldviews that he's fighting for. But when he speaks, I think he undermines himself because he doesn't come across as presidential. He doesn't really come across as having a fantastic grasp on things. He does better in his daily briefings, but that's a certain track. The problem is, could you imagine Joe Biden in that seat? He'd be tracking even less. He wouldn't even get a single sentence out. It's been some really bizarre Joe moments recently. The one that happened today as I record this is the strange response he has to a reporter's question about cognitive testing, which has been a topic since Trump's Wallace interview and even a little bit before that, but it really picked up in Trump's Wallace interview. I played those clips for you. And so the reporter wanted to ask Biden straight up. And Biden responds, bizarrely. He reminds me of my family members who are on the decline, who would sometimes be immediately triggered. One word could send them into a rage, and then they would try to play it off. Oh, I, no, 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 I was just kidding. I, I'm not really upset. Um, and that's how they were initially, until things got worse, and then they stopped trying to play it off. Joe's response has a similar ring. Please clarify specifically, have you taken a cognitive no, test? No, I haven't taken a test. 
Why the hell would I take a test? Come on, man. That's like saying you, before you got in this program, you take a test where you're taking cocaine or not. What do you think, huh? That doesn't make any sense. Are, are you a junkie? What do you say? Are you a junkie? What, what? To President Trump, who brags about his test and makes your mental state an issue for voters. Well, if he can't figure out the difference between an elephant and a lion, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Did you watch that? Look, come on, man. I, I, I know you're trying to goad me, but I mean, I'm so forward looking to have an opportunity to sit with the president or stand with the president in debates. That's not even half a sentence. Let's let's. So he's looking. What did he kind of goad me? But I mean, I'm so forward looking to have an opportunity to sit with the president or stand with the president in debates. Now, we asked the Biden campaign this morning if they wanted to add any additional context to those remarks, specifically comparing a mental test to being tested for cocaine. The campaign has not yet responded. Yeah. Yeah, they probably should have because it's gotten more reporting than I thought it would have when that first came out this morning. Um, and it's gotten a lot more play all day long. I don't know if it, if it will after today, but it has gotten more play than I expected. There was a moment that didn't get much play. In fact, NBC selectively edited around this moment, which I only caught because I caught it on an Australian feed. Welcome to Kingswood Community Center. Actually, that's the one down I used to work as a joke. You didn't know where we were anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Just joking. I totally got confused and didn't know where we were. And he can't even get that out. He gets where he's standing wrong. And this has happened multiple times. He doesn't even know where he's standing. Welcome to Kingswood Community Center. Actually, that's the one down I used to work. As a joke. You didn't know where we were anyway. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's great to be here. And... Uh, Back uh, to a place where, uh, you know. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. So this is a problem because he's ahead right now. He's pulling ahead. This strategy of letting his representative speak for him has worked. And when he speaks, it undermines his candidacy. He keeps speaking like this. He's going to lose his shot at the presidency, just like Trump. And so political strategists on the left have been recommending that he avoid the debates. But how do you do that and save face and not essentially admit that Joe has cognitive issues? Well, Joe Lockhart has come up with the solution. He wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times, which got him picked up on some news uh, broadcasts, some, some interesting ideas in here. And he essentially has built the case that because Trump is such a conspiracy nut, that Biden should skip the debates to avoid giving Trump a platform. This is a president who, as I said in the article, is incapable of telling the truth. He spins these conspiracy uh, theories out there. And up till now, most of those theories are uh, broadcast by Fox News and, you know, on his Twitter feed. And, you know, most Americans don't see that. The debates are very different. This is the one thing, you know, now that we're not really going to have conventions where the public will tune in, you know, uh, you know, 50, 60 million people. And they will they will see all of this nonsense from him. He will take the truth and, and destroy it. And, and Biden will be in the position of correcting him over and over and over again. I don't think he should give him that platform.
I could see that potentially working. I don't, I mean, it won't, but that was a good tack to try because that was the justification they used to stop airing the daily coronavirus briefings. So you could see that same logic applied to the debates, but it seems like the Biden campaign's willing to do the debates. Some in the media calling for Joe Biden not to debate President Trump before the November election, with one New York Times columnist suggesting debates give the president, quote, unfair advantages. Peter Ducey is live for us in Wilmington, Delaware, Biden's hometown. And Peter, is there any reaction from the Biden campaign? There is this morning, Trace. We asked about some of that, and the Biden campaign tells us the former VP is in for the debates with this. Joe Biden said in June that he looks forward to debating Donald Trump on the dates and in the locations chosen by the Presidential Commission on Debates. We are still waiting for Donald Trump to agree to as much. We asked the Trump campaign about that. They say the president has agreed to that much and more. With this statement, President Trump is looking forward to debating Joe Biden, who is the only one who is being publicly advised to skip debates. In fact, we have asked for a greater number of debates and an earlier calendar. Voters in 16 states will already be casting their early votes before the first debate takes place on September 29th, as the schedule stands now. That seems like an intentional tactic. 16 states will have already casted their early votes before the first debate. And when the Biden campaign says the Trump campaign hasn't agreed to the debates, what they mean is the Trump campaign is asking to do more debates and uh, they want to do them earlier, maybe before people start voting. (laughs) Oh, boy. You know, Joe's done some debates. He's done more debates recently than Trump has, right? Because he had to do the primaries. So it it should be possible for him to pull it off. But it's a good trick to push it as far as possible. I think that's pretty clever. Something else he's been pushing out as far as possible is the announcement of his VP pick, which he has to make soon. And I've been wondering, what's what's with the delay? What's with the delay? And then it hit me, and I hate this idea. But I've been looking at the the top list of potential picks. And the ones that are emerging at the top of Joe's list seem to be candidates who will keep a secret for the party. The perfect candidate that would keep the cognitive health of the president quiet. And when I think who's perfect for that, yeah, Kamala Harris definitely would toe the party line. She's... She's proven that she's willing to change gears quick for whichever way the political winds are blowing. She's a Clinton-style Democrat for sure. But there's someone even even better. And if you think about who would have influence over Joe, I think Obama. I think when Joe's trying to make this decision, he would take advice from Barack Obama. And Barack Obama in my mind, is going to be pushing for Susan Rice to be Joe Biden's VP pick. Susan Rice knows how to keep a secret. She knows how to toe the party line. We don't really know how, where she stands on domestic issues, so they can just make all of that up. And we know where she stands on foreign issues, and it's right where the Obamas and the Clinton-style Democrats would want a VP who will likely really be running the show, a Cheney-style control Susan Rice really fits that bill. 
Presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden is narrowing down his pick for a running mate with the Democratic National Convention just two weeks away. Former National Security Advisor and U.N. Ambassador Susan Rice is apparently among those being considered. Her best-selling memoir, Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For, is now available in paperback. It's what a great timing on that. Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For, a New York Times bestseller right away, by the way, with an all-new afterword right there, even though it's a brand-new book. Published by Simon & Schuster, a division of Viacom CBS. Ambassador Rice, good morning to you. We are Nice and fresh and updated, just in time to give her an excuse to come on the shows and get her name out there. Just really well. Great. You know, you got a book. It's a great excuse to get on 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 the news. If the book's been out for a while, you do an update to that book. It opens up doors. Down the straightaway. And I think people want to know, have you been able to interview with Joe Biden yet? Well, good morning, uh, Jerika, and good morning, everyone. Uh, I can't talk about uh, the process as it stands. I want to respect the vice president and his ability uh, to pick the, the person that he deems best. So She smiles when she says that. Makes me wonder. Rice, Rice has a lot of baggage. She was a Russiagate pusher of the worst kind. He's taken a series of steps that had Vladimir Putin dictated them, he couldn't have mirrored more effectively. Um, What his motivations are, I think, is a legitimate question, one that I trust that uh, the special counsel is investigating. But the policies that this president has pursued globally have served Vladimir Putin's interest in dividing the West, undermining democracy. Does that mean you think it's an open question whether or not he's compromised by Russia? George, I don't know what his motivations are. I think that's a legitimate question. Just uh, really sowing confidence in the president of the United States there. Remember, Rice was involved in the conversations in Obama's office about unmasking people in that were being monitored around the Trump administration. She sent emails. She's on record being involved with this stuff. Also, Rice was on the air saying that removing troops out of Syria was batshit crazy. I woke up this morning to hear that news, and as I do, it seems like six days a week, I just put my head in my hands. This is bad crazy. She's the kind of Democrat that wants more war. She's the kind of Democrat that wants to go into Syria. She's that kind of Democrat. And that, that scares the hell out of me. And Rice, she was also the one that led the blame on a video for the Benghazi attack. Your Unfilter Show was on the air, and this clip is from the Unfilter Show from back then, and I called this bullshit years ago. What sparked the recent violence was the airing on the Internet of a very hateful, very offensive video. It began spontaneously in Benghazi uh, as a reaction to what had transpired some hours earlier in Cairo, where, of course, as you know, uh, there was a violent protest outside of our embassy uh, sparked by this uh, hateful video. Later, when Hillary's emails leaked, it showed they knew, even while she was on the air saying that, they knew it was a lie. They knew it. And she still went on the air and she still lied to the American people over and over and over again. You can find half a dozen clips of her talking about that stupid video being the cause. They lied to us. And now she's going to be the VP, the actual president in the White House? I hope not. But I think it's going that direction. 
because something tells me the Biden campaign needs a Democrat who will say the right thing at the right time and keep her mouth shut when she's supposed to. And Susan Rice certainly fits that bill. So does Kamala. But again, I go back to Barry, and I think Barry's advising Biden to go with Susan Rice. And I think the delays are them trying to do the counter-research to figure out how to shore up her insufficiencies. I could be off, and we'll find out soon. But that would be my, 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 my guess right now is Susan Rice and my top concern. Kamala Harris is a, is a career politician, not a career politician, what's the way to put this, is a whichever way the wind blows kind of politician. That's what I'm trying to say. And that's dangerous too. She's got no morals. She's got no clear values that she constantly pursues. I think the number one thing she did that still chaps my hide as a parent is she went after parents for their own students' truancies. Parents were the parents in this case were predominantly poor and 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 disadvantaged families that they went after just because the way the cards fell, right? If you go after families for the students being truant, guess what? You disproportionately target African American family African American families and poor families. And that was Camel's policy. I hate that kind of stuff. I hate I hate the way that she jumps health care where she's for uh, everybody gets health care. And then a couple days later, she's against it. I don't think she did particularly well in the debates either. I think he he gave himself an arbitrary restriction when he answered a question off the fly and it set this process way off. And now we're sitting here waiting to find out who the VP pick is. And it matters more than ever because that's going to be who's actually running the country if he wins the election, in my opinion. I'd like to know what you think, though, on filter.show slash discord. Let's wrap it up with a little couple of bits of good news. After that, I feel like we need a palate cleanser. You guys know that I'm a big fan of road trips. I'm a huge fan of our national parks. I love taking my family to national parks. Just went to Yellowstone recently, and I am very happy to see that Trump has signed the Great American Outdoors Act, which means money for some of these parks. American Outdoors Act provides $900 million a year in guaranteed funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund so that all Americans can continue to enjoy our parks, wildlife, refuges. I mean, you look at this, you look at what we do with our wildlife. You see how he kind of goes off the rails when he can't pronounce something, can't read it. Refugees, he's thinking to himself. Refugees? Why is refugees on here? So what he does is he starts to vamp. And this is generally where he gets himself in trouble, but he manages to pull out this time. Life refuges. I mean, you look at this, you look at what we do with our wildlife, and uh, it's really been incredible. So all of the wildlife areas, the wildlife uh, parks, historic battlefields, national monuments, and public lands. Additionally, this bill provides nearly $10 billion for long-delayed maintenance projects, repairs, and upgrades to make the national parks greater than they have ever been before. I think that's going to happen. <laughs> a little bit of vamp in there at the end, too. Uh, <laughs> he's got a trick where he, when he can't read something, he makes it sound like he was just changing gears. Uh, not bad, um, but obvious. And then the last bit of good news that I wanted to throw in here towards the end is 
this awesome historic mission. It's been a long time, but we've got some good space news here in the States. Tonight, mission accomplished. NASA and SpaceX completing a historic feat this afternoon when two U.S. astronauts in the SpaceX Dragon capsule splashed down in the Gulf of Mexico. Here's ABC's Gio Benitez. Tonight, that historic splashdown. Splashdown. Dragon Endeavor has returned home. Astronauts Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley inside the SpaceX Dragon Endeavor for this 19-hour journey to Earth, orbiting the planet at a mind-blowing 17,000 miles per hour before entering the atmosphere at 2.36 p.m. Eastern. The extreme heat cutting off all communications between the Dragon and Earth for four tense minutes. Hoping and praying um, that uh, everything is going well. And look, we just made history. Uh, the United States of America once again has a human spaceflight program. At 2.40, the astronauts signal they're okay. Four minutes later, those chutes deploy. Dragon ultimately slowing down to just 15 miles per hour, splashing down in the Gulf of Mexico. Welcome back to planet Earth, and thanks for flying SpaceX. The Dragon avoiding Tropical Storm Isaias in the Atlantic. Astronaut Doug Hurley with the first words from inside the Dragon. It's truly our honor and privilege. A recovery boat loading up the Dragon. The heat shield underneath it charred by that re-entry 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Locals racing in their own boats to get a view. Maybe next time we shouldn't announce our landing zone. <laughs> there was guys out there in their boats, and they had Trump signs. I got a good laugh out of that. I can't believe they pre-announced the landing zone, but it's awesome to see it happen. It's been 40 years. The recovery team wearing masks and hazmat suits. Bob and Doug emerging on stretchers, feeling gravity for the first time in 64 days. The first American splashdown in 45 years splashdown. since the Apollo era. Pretty awesome. 45 years. All right, that's the show for this week. Thank you so much to our patrons at patreon.com slash unfilter for supporting this here show. Links and extra context of what I talked about, unfilter.show slash three, two, one. See you next week.